Good morning again, brothers and sisters. Uh, I do just want to say before we get started, I'm so thankful uh, to have everyone back. I know over the past several weeks we've had quite a bit of sickness, so I'm thankful that um, we're on the mend. And I, and I really am thankful. Y'all know these past two plus, how many, this is the third year, entering the third year of this coronavirus, God's been very kind to us overall. And so I'm very thankful for his, for his goodness. Well, it's time now for us to turn our attention to the word of our God. So we're coming back this morning to the book of Job, Job chapter 1. I want to focus this morning on uh, four verses, Job 8 through 11. Job, Job chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. We're going to be looking this morning at... The subject of Christian prosperity in the book of Job. Christian prosperity in the book of Job. So Job chapter 1 verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on, on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of our God. I'd like to pray now and ask his blessings on it as we dive into it. Father, thank you for another opportunity to gather as your people to hear your word. Father, I pray that you'd help me this morning to stand behind the cross. Lord, and stand on the, the truth and certainty and power of your word. And that you would speak to heaven. Lord, we do as we have sung. We pray, open up the heavens. We want, Lord, we need to see you. We need to hear your word. So we pray that you'd bless us now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Does Job fear God for no reason? This is the central question of the book of Job. <clears throat> Why does Job really worship God? Does he worship him just because of the things he gets from God? Or does Job serve and worship him because God is worthy of worship just because of who he is? You and I cannot come to the story of Job without asking ourselves the same questions. Why do we worship God? Why are you here today? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you do the things you do for God? Is it because you love Him? Do you do the things you do for God because He loves you? Or do you do the things you do for God because of the things you hope to get in return from God? I want to look today at what it means to flourish and prosper as a Christian. 
So we're going to be looking at Christian prosperity. Now I want to look at it um, through two lenses. Number one, I, I want to look at it from the perspective of Satan. I don't, we don't often try to look at things from the perspective of Satan, but we get the perspective of Satan in our text. But then I want to look at it through the lens of Scripture. What does prosperity look like through the lens of Scripture? So number one, what is Satan's perspective about prosperity? Well, would you agree with, can we just, can we get, can we agree on one thing right here at the very beginning? Satan's perspective is wicked, right? Right. So this is an evil perspective. Um, you know, Job was an incredibly prosperous man. In, in fact, in terms of his possessions and his wealth, Job was living like a king. And in fact, he may have been a type of king for his day and time. In Satan's mind, Job worshipped God not because of God's love for Job. He believed that Job was worshipping God because of the benefits that Job was receiving from God. Now, here's the thing, y'all. Satan is no dummy. He was wrong about Job. But Satan is absolutely right in the fact that many people do serve God because of the benefits they hope to get from him. He might have been wrong about Job, but he's not wrong about the human condition. You know, this, this can take many forms. Some people are religious just as a form of fire insurance, right? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to church just in case there is a God. I don't want to end up in hell, right? It's like, just in case. Or some people religiously will give of their, they'll tithe. But not because they long to see the kingdom prosper, but they, they, they want to make sure if there is a God that, you know, I'm doing my part so I get my blessings financially. I've personally been guilty. I don't, I don't know how many versions of this I've been guilty of, but, you know, I grew up in a Christian family. And I, I grew up in a fairly healthy Christian community of believers that valued um, togetherness as a church family. You know, as, as I matured into to an adult, I became very faithful to the church. Very, I mean, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, anything, anything else they added on, buddy, I was there. But looking back, you know what I realize? I wasn't always there 100% of the time because I was being 100% faithful to Jesus. Looking back, I realized that so much of the time I was really more in love with my reputation as a Christian man than I was with Christ or his people. Just to give a kind of an example, this is a this this is a make believe story. So this is not in the Bible, but there's a story about Jesus teaching his disciples, and he um, one day he's teaching, and he says, "Hey, everybody, pick up a rock." And so you know the disciples start picking up rocks, and Peter says, "Pick up," a, or Jesus says, "Pick up a rock and follow me." And so Peter grabs a little rock because he don't, doesn't know how far they're going to walk, and. After walking about an hour, 
Jesus told everyone to sit down, and, and everybody sits down, and, and Jesus says, poof, he transformed everybody's rock into their lunch. Well, here's Peter with a little hors d'oeuvre, right? A little snack for lunch, and he's thinking, boy, I wish I'd have gotten a bigger rock. So they get done with lunch, and, and they get up, and Jesus says, all right, everybody pick up a rock. And Peter says, I'm not going to be fooled twice on this one. So what do you think Peter did? He got him a big rock. And he said, I don't know how far we're walking, but I'm, I know I'm going to be hungry whenever we get to the next stop. So here he picks up this big heavy rock, and they carry it for about an hour, and they come beside this river. And Jesus says, okay, everybody, throw your rock into the river. Now, what, what was it that Peter learned about himself? He wasn't really carrying the rock for Jesus, was he? You know, and, and aren't we like that so much of the time? We want to leverage, you know, the things we do for the benefits we're hoping to get out of Jesus. Right? We leverage our relationship with him for sometimes for our own selfish purposes. And, and this is the reason, guys, this is the reason for so many people Christianity is not working. This is the reason so many people give up on Christianity. Or, or have you ever known people where they, they, they come into a difficult season of life and they think, man, I need a little God. Maybe if, maybe if I start uh, going to church or maybe if I start doing this religious thing or that religious thing or maybe if I try this, maybe then God will help my situation a little bit and make it a little better. You know, others are being very faithful in their religious obedience. They're going to church, they're giving their money, they're staying out of trouble, but they're frustrated. Why? It's just because they have a consumeristic relationship with God. A consumeristic relationship. Well, what do you mean a consumeristic relationship? Well, let's just imagine, I'm certain some of us are going to go out to eat after church today, Right? Well, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you have a consumeristic relationship with that restaurant, right? You, you take something very valuable to you, your hard-earned money, and what you hope to, to receive in return is a good plate of food. And you know what? If you go to that restaurant and they don't give you what you want, what do you do? You stop going, right? Well, you know, that's quite a bit different from a family relationship or a loving relationship. You know, in a healthy family, you're not, or at least you shouldn't be, just in it for what you can selfishly get out of it. In a loving relationship, people don't do things for each other because of what, the, you know, you're hoping to leverage the other person uh, for some type of benefit to yourself. You know, Satan has capitalized on the selfish tendency of the human heart. He was wrong about Job, but, but his thinking is, is perfectly in line with human depravity. Satan has crafted whole religious movements around this principle. Have you ever heard of what is commonly called the prosperity gospel? Currently, some of the largest churches in America operate on this principle or one of its mutated forms. What is the prosperity gospel? I mean, y'all, there are people who overtly teach that part of what Jesus died for on the cross, 
is that you and I could have material wealth, physical health, success in our businesses, success in life, and all, everybody in the world liking us here and now. Why has the prosperity gospel been so successful, not here, just here in the United States, but around the world? It's because it taps right into the, self, the desires of the selfish, greedy, human heart. The prosperity gospel takes all of the things, the unregenerate heart, the heart of a person who is unsaved. It takes all the things they already want. And it makes those things that an unsaved person, every human heart already wants. And it makes those things the reward for faith. Typically, what is taught, and this is why it wrecks so many lives, y'all. The prosperity gospel cannot deliver on its promises. Typically, what is taught is all that you need to enjoy success in this life, health, wealth, and prosperity from a worldly standpoint. All you need is enough faith. And typically, here's what typically happens. This, this fancy preacher will stand up here and say, the way you prove your faith is by giving me money to my ministry. Right? Seed? Seed money? This would be, this would be, I wish what I was saying was a caricature. I wish, I wish I was just exaggerating, but this literally thousands of people this morning are sitting someplace hearing this message right now. And, and so this false gospel preys on the elderly. It preys on the poor. And here's what happens. When the prosperity preachers, when, when this form, when this false gospel can't deliver, Why? Because you didn't have enough faith. Ah. Why is Job suffering? Is it because he didn't have enough faith? You see? You see where we're getting at with this? Now, perhaps, and, and I don't think, I mean, right now at least, uh, for, you and for us here at the road, there's a lot of forms of this, but the overt prosperity gospel, we're probably a little more sophisticated than to just fall for that kind of stuff. I mean, listen, I would love to see the looks on your faces if I showed up um, to church next Sunday and said, the Lord told me I need a $60 million jet so I can, you know, go do ministry in Ecuador, Right. I would love to see the looks. You're right. You're not going to fall for that. But um, but you know something? Guess what? We might be sophisticated, but Satan is too. The prosperity gospel has these mutated forms. And a very popular version that I do think we need to be careful of and is already with us and in us to some degrees. and, and, And one that's... It's much, I think it's more insidious because it's so subtle. Um, and, and you could call it different things. It's been called the therapeutic gospel. Um, it's been referred to as moralistic therapeutic deism. And those are all just a bunch of fancy names. The, um, the, the, the research of George Barna, he's a kind of a well-known, well-established uh, person who does a lot of 
research about faith in the United States, his research has concluded that, that moralistic therapeutic deism is the predominant worldview in the United States. Of all the worldviews, this is the, the most common. The two most, uh, there's, uh, there, there's different things, but the two most basic tenets of the, th- the therapeutic gospel are that good people go to heaven, so be good, complete contradiction of salvation by grace, right? So be good, and the main purpose of life is for you to be happy. Y'all, we all are infected with this one, right? What, these false gospels co-opt the sinful desires of the fallen human heart, right? That's why they're so successful. So God exists not as a transcendent God of all things who is worthy of our worship, but God exists to make us happy. The therapeutic gospel takes our man-centered selfishness, combines it with our consumeristic culture and the modern psychology of self-esteem and baptizes them to make them into a very appealing counterfeit form of Christianity. Serving God, worshiping God, going to church is not about communion with the transcendent, glorious God. Going to church is about being affirmed for who you are. Getting some help with your life. Right? Self-help. I mean... Don't you see this stuff? Listen, Lifeway, oh, whoops. I'm calling names. Christian bookstores are full of these books tainted with this false gospel that cannot deliver on its promises. Well, the problem with the therapeutic gospel is just like the prosperity gospel. It's false. And it, and, and it actually, it, it, pro, it gives you the promise. It's, like, it's just like how many of you like to fish. What do you do? What do you do to catch a fish? You get a hook. And you don't throw a hook down there at fish. You stick a nice, flashy, juicy-looking lure. Looks oh so attractive. Oh, the promise that juicy little lure gives. But when the fish bites on it, what happens? Destruction. Get fried, right? That's, that's, what, that's what these false gospels do. They, they make these promises, but they're, they're, it's a false gospel, so they cannot deliver. They, these false gospels rob us of what they're actually, pro- they actually rob us of what they're promising us. And that's what Satan's come to do. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy, right? So one of his greatest tactics is to, is to create these counterfeit forms of religion that seem, and you know what, um, the problem, the problem with Job's friends, right? 
The problem with the prosperity, I'm tempted to start going down a list of names. Like, I won't do it now, but if you want a list of names, come see me after the message. But the problem with these people is, is buddy, uh, they can have 80% nice-sounding biblical theology. But it's that 20% that is so perverted. It's, it's a false system. of, But it sounds so good. It, look, it looks so, that's, I mean, a counterfeit wouldn't even work if it didn't look like the original. That's how crafty Satan is. It's one of the reasons the book of Job is so helpful because it, com- it quickly dispatches with these false counterfeit gospels that cannot save, that cannot bless, and cannot really even in the short term, really deliver on the happiness they say they can provide. Well, number two, what does the Bible actually teach about prosperity? So after, after hearing me rail against the prosperity gospel, you might be surprised to hear me say what's coming next, but um, God does promise prosperity to his people. No doubt about it. But here's the thing. You and I need to learn to define prosperity in God's terms and not ours. That's the whole secret. That's the whole secret. His is, can I make this real simple? His is better. His version is better. His way is better. Sin takes the human heart takes the desires of the human heart. And th- what it does, it bends those desires. We're, we're all cr- created as these beings who desire things. And we're created to desire and be fulfilled by God. But, but, but sin hijacks the, the desires of the human hearts, uh, d- our human hearts, and, and wants to bend those desires away from God in a way that will be destructive to ourselves and to people around us. So sin will take, it, it's a good desire. I mean, don't, don't, you, don't you want your family to flourish and prosper? That's a good desire. You should want to be prosperous and, and flourish as a human being yourself. That is a good desire. But sin will try to take that desire and bend it in a selfish direction that will wind up hurting others and harming yourself. So let me give you an example. Uh, just a couple of days ago, I had this guy tell me about um, he was in Lowe's with a friend. In the Lowe's in Tifton, and this was years ago, and this was not the person I know, but his friend, just in case anybody wants to inquire, but... Um, they're in Lowe's, and the friend, the, the, the friend says, oh, look, here's this, like, three or $400 tool. And my buddy's like, I can't afford that. And the guy's like, <laughs> watch this. So he took the $300 tool out of its box, and he found a mailbox for, like, 12 or $15, and he puts the expensive tool inside the other box. And they check out, and they $12 for a $350 tool. Well, what's just happened? That's a theft. That is stealing. So here's what's happened in that, right? Um, a person wants an advantage. They want to prosper. They, 
they need this tool to make their life better, some project, whatever. Well, they've just deprived the owner of this property that belonged to them, the value that belonged to them. Well, you know, what they've actually done is they've actually hurt the whole community. Why? Well, you think about how many thefts there are from Lowe's every year, and guess what happens? We pay for that, right? Because what do they do? They just adjust the prices to take into account the margin of theft, the margin of loss. So every single one of us are paying for the price. And not only that, the person, you know, if they get caught doing that, what's going to happen? They're going to go to jail. They're risking jail time. Well, you know what? If you're tempted to go to Lowe's today and steal something, Going to jail would be pretty bad, but you know what's even worse than that? That sin wasn't just a sin against Lowe's, and it wasn't just a sin against the community. It wasn't just doing harm, potential harm to the person. That was a sin against a holy God. It is stealing, and that violates the holiness, the holy character of God. And if a person does that and will not repent, they will suffer an eternity of paying for their unrepentant sins. You see how harmful that desire for this good thing bent in a selfish direction is causing damage to the person's soul. It's causing damage to the people he's depriving and even to the whole community. And there's so many other examples of that. God wants us to flourish and prosper, but God wants us to do it in ways that are eternally good for our souls and for the, everyone in the world around us. Listen to Mark. So many places, y'all, so many places we could go in the scripture to see these points I'm wanting to show you, but listen to this. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 36. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The problem with the prosperity gospel and its twist. You want to know what the problem is for the prosperity gospel and its mutated forms? Jesus. The prosperity gospel and the, pros- and the therapeutic gospel will never ask you to deny yourself and take up your cross. You're, never, you're going to hear your best life now. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? There is a kind. This is so attractive, y'all. This is the lure. This is the lure that is tempting probably all of us in some way right now. Right now, I'm not talking about the sins of other people. I'm talking about the dangers for us. There is a kind of prosperity where you get your rewards here. But at the end of time, when you stand before Christ, you lose your soul, you lose everything. You can gain all the comfort, all the wealth, all the security, all the status, all the power in the world. 
but lose your soul. But Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. When when sin came into the world, it flipped everything upside down. And I mean, even the Bible mentions the fact that sometimes the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Look at Job, right? A good man, a a man that is godly. He was a godly man. He had a healthy relationship with God. He was a worshiper. Look at him suffer. Look at Job and his sufferings. And you con- let's contrast Job with another wealthy man in the Bible. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable about this wealthy man who, this rich man who's, he was a farmer, and man, his crops were producing so bountifully. I mean, the crop, I mean, like every year it's a bumper crop. And, and so, much so, so much so this man says, man, look at my increase. And he doesn't thank God for it, anything like that. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear my barns down so I can build bigger barns. And then he builds his bigger barns and he looks at all of his prosperity. He looks at his wealth. And he says, you know, soul, I'm just going to take my rest and my things. I'm going to, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to put my trust in these things that I possess. Listen to what Jesus said, Luke 12, 20. Fool, there's an exclamation point in the text. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, if you take a snapshot of Job at his lowest, and you take a snapshot of this wealthy man in the parable at his highest, every one of us would look at the the wealthy man and say, man, God's blessing him. God's really blessing him, isn't he? Right? We fundamentally need to understand prosperity through the, the lens of Scripture. Because earthly prosperity, it, it could be a blessing from God. I'm not saying earthly prosperity is not a blessing from God, but it could very well be exactly the opposite of what it appears to be. So you you, you take a snapshot of Job and this rich man in, in these different moments of their lives, but let me ask you something. Take a look at them now. Who's... The prosperous one now. The reality of living in the fallen world means that there will be. Acts chapter 16, Paul said, we must. He, I love this little verse there. It, Paul, it says he came back, he encouraged the churches. Here's his encouragement. He encouraged the churches saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Jesus. Matthew chapter 16. Or John chapter 16. Anyway, he said, in the world, you shall have tribulation. 
In the world, we will have struggles. We will have trials. But the ultimate goal of life is not to have as many comforts and toys as possible here. The goal, the meaning of life is everlasting prosperity with our Savior. Romans 8 verses 16 through 18 I love this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Y'all, what I'm about to say is it's unbelievable. Unbelievably wonderful. We are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And no human mind can conceive of the wonder and beauty of what comes next. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Joint heirs, co-heirs. It's saying everything that Jesus stands to inherit as the only begotten Son of God, as the King of glory, everything that He will inherit, namely everything is ours too. But listen, listen, he's not done. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. You see, there's, there's not going to be the life of one Christian that's not without suffering of some type. So we biblically, we can't, we cannot Define prosperity, Christian biblical prosperity, in terms of a lack of suffering, right? Can't do it. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the joy. That is to be revealed in us. Do you see this? You know what the biblical gospel teaches the Christian? First the cross. Then the crown. First the cross. Then the crown. you belong to Jesus, you will experience suffering in this life. But as children of God, as the family of Jesus, as joint heirs, as co-heirs with Christ, we stand to inherit untold, unending bliss with Jesus forever. Look at Job's suffering. Look at all the suffering you have endured, right? Or maybe right now, you could be drowning in depression. You could be drowning in some type of financial trial or some type of... I mean, your family could be falling apart. Uh, Untold number of difficult things you could be going through right now. Brothers and sisters, don't give up on your faith. One day, the promise of the Word of God is that one day, you and I, 
will stand and look back and look at every hard thing we have endured. And on that day, the sufferings, the trials won't even compare to the joys we're experiencing. I I know I say this one a lot. I'm going to say it again. And maybe if you listen to me preach for six or ten or maybe God will give us 20 or 30 years together. Maybe I'll say this a thousand times and maybe you won't forget it. And some of you probably sang this hymn growing up too, When We All Get to Heaven. There's this one little line in that thing that, man, I love. Just one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay. The first glimpse of Jesus will have made it worth it all. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I want you to take your life, every aspect of your life, your family, your job, your possessions, all that makes you who and what you are, take it and use it to pursue the kind of prosperity that lasts eternally and can never be taken away from you. One day, you and I will stand before the throne of Jesus with our life's pursuits in our hands. And if you, if, if in reality, y'all, there's going to be people that went to church way more than we did. But they will be standing there, and in reality, what they did with everything the Lord blessed them with is they used it to pursue earthly, temporary prosperity. And on that day, you know what they're going to be holding in their hands? A great, big, fat bar of fool's gold that will crumble in their fingers when they stand before Jesus. But on that day, if Jesus is your treasure, then you have in your your hands what Psalm 1611 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, give us faith to receive the truth and the power of it. Father, the reality is here, me and my friends have spent too much of our lives chasing fool's gold, the kind of prosperity that won't last. And Father, I pray that you would do a unique thing in our lives and our minds and hearts, that you would give us a hunger for the treasure that can never be taken away from us. Father, in these few moments, Lord, I I pray that that, Father, you will have done uh, uh, an amazing work in tenderizing our hearts and making them good ground for the seeds of your word to land on and take root. 
And Father, I pray that because of what we have done here today, this look we've had into your word, Father, that abundant fruit for the glory of your name would come from our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.